Good morning, everyone. There are three Bible passages for our morning reading. The first is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, followed by Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 17 and 19, and the sermon passage of Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 to 42. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to these passages. I will commence reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 19 verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest he incur sin because of him. You shall take you should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 42. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, designed to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down that road, and when saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And when he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you 
when I come back? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Mother, Mother, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which shall not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see everyone here at uh, Ryan's Road at church, as well as those of you who are in home churches. Uh, welcome to SLE Church for another week. Uh, we are continuing on our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. This is the, first, uh, the fifth sermon <clears throat> in this series. If you haven't been around over the last few weeks, uh, you can go to the church website uh, and watch back or listen back to the previous sermons. <clears throat> this uh, series was meant to end next week uh, in, in chapter 11, but we decided to keep going on with Luke's gospel at least to the beginning of next year. So if you do like to uh, read ahead before the sermons come up, please do keep reading on in Luke's gospel and we'll be continuing our sermon series uh, through it. As many of you know, this is the fifth sermon I'm preaching in this series. Uh, next week, Steve will take over for a couple of weeks uh, and I'm really looking forward to having that bit of a break as well. Uh, for now, please keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 10. We'll be looking at this uh, very famous uh, passage that includes two famous stories, uh, the Good Samaritan and Martha and Mary. Uh, but we'll try and see whether we can hear what God has to say to us uh, through this passage. Uh, you'll also find, as always, the outline of the sermon inside the bulletin, which you can download from the website. But for now, please, um, with Bibles open, let's go to God, that he will open our hearts to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that in the past uh, five weeks, as we've um, been looking at this middle section of Luke's gospel, we've been able to come face to face with who Jesus really is, uh, that he is the Christ, uh, the eternal king, uh, that who's ushering in his kingdom, uh, which means that he has the right to rule over our lives, that to follow him means to deny ourselves uh, and really give our lives over to him, but to also see that as Christ, he is the suffering servant, <clears throat> and to see that he suffered on the cross for our sins, which means that following him means that we too will have to suffer and, and sacrifice as we follow in the footsteps of our master. We thank you that over the past few weeks we've learned about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be uh, entirely devoted to him and to have him be the one that defines us for us to be the ones that belong to him. And for us also to be included in his mission, uh, to be doing the work of sharing the news of salvation uh, to the people around us. Today, as we continue on sitting under your word, we pray that you'll help us understand what it means to be devoted as disciples of Jesus, and what it means truly to love our neighbor and to love you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, loving God and loving others, uh, as Christians, if you've been in church for any length of time, you would have heard it hundreds, 
and maybe thousands of times before. Right? In principle, all Christians right, would agree with this. Right? I don't think there's a Christian I, I know that wouldn't agree that loving God and loving others is an extremely crucial part of what it means to be a believer. Uh, even our non-Christian family and friends would, 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 would say that. They would think of Christianity as, as being a religion that teaches us that if God really did exist, that we ought to love God, and we certainly ought to be loving other people. It is, after all, a basic human virtue that everyone subscribes to. And in practice, not just in principle, but in practice, I think we all strive to be loving, don't we? Whether it be to love God or to, to love our family or to love our friends, all of us are trying in real and practical ways to be loving. And so, in practice and in principle, we are no different to the people that we meet in this story. I think the lawyer here is genuinely trying to love God and others in his way, and certainly Mary and Martha are as well. They agree on the importance of love. And so the challenge from God's word today isn't to call on us to to love God and to love others. What we'll see in this passage is that the challenge is whether our love for others is limited and whether our devotion to God is distracted. We all agree on the principle of loving God and loving others, but is our love for neighbor limited? Is our love for God distracted? So as we approach the passage, as we go into the story, we see in the first part, verse 25, a lawyer approaches Jesus. <clears throat> so this lawyer here isn't our, uh, our modern-day lawyer right, who, who fights for us in the court of law. We're talking about a, an expert in the Jewish law, right, the law of Moses, the law of God. And it was common practice for Jewish leaders and lawyers and teachers to debate among themselves a very important question, a very important question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this question that they debated among themselves was was put as a test by this lawyer to Jesus. In a way, how Jesus answered this question would show Jesus' theological credentials. Is he legit? Does he know his stuff? Is he in line with with the Jewish teachings that all the other Jewish teachers have? Now, when we hear the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, we often think it's the same question as, how do I get saved? Right? What do I have to do to earn my salvation? But if you were a Jew and a Jewish leader asking this question, if you're someone who's already a part of God's people, then the question might be more along the lines of, how can I be sure right, I'll receive the eternal blessings of God? Right? How can I be sure? How can I live up my faith in such a way that assures me that I'll inherit eternal life, that I'll inherit the blessings that God promises. So on the one hand, it could be a question of how do I become a God person, but on the other hand, it could also be how do I live as a God's person. Now depending on what the story goes on to say, the context will tell us which of these questions is more front and center. And I do believe it's more a question of discipleship, right? how do we live as God's people? Now Jesus doesn't answer the lawyer's question. As he often does, Jesus turns it back to the question asker, to the lawyer, and says, what do you think? You're an expert of the law. How do you read the law? What do you understand this answer to be? And the lawyer gives the model answer. You'll get straight sevens if you give this answer, right? Uh, Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two commandments taken from the Old Testament that we heard read out before. The first one from, uh, from Deuteronomy 6. Five, right? Love the God, that, that, that Shema, that, that commandment that they would repeat every day as a Jew. And the other from Leviticus 18, 18. 
And together, they came to be known as the great commandment. Love God, love neighbor. The royal law of love. Jesus himself would summarize the law of God in this way. This really is the model answer. Love for God and love for others. It goes all the way back to what we were created for, isn't it? If you go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God created for us to be in relationship with him and in relationship with each other. Love God, love others. When God rescued Israel out of Egypt and made them his people and he gave them the law, it summarized as being about love for God and love for others, the Ten Commandments. You could break it as half-half, isn't it? Commandments 1 to 4 is about loving God. Commandments 6 to 10 is about loving others. Love for God and for others is therefore also the way of life for disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. The New Testament would teach this over and over again. This is the way God's people ought to live. And so the lawyer got it absolutely right. And then Jesus tells the lawyer, you got the answer right. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Live this life of love out as a believer and you will have the assurance the inheritance of eternal life will belong to you. Now let's be clear that Jesus isn't promoting some kind of works-based salvation here. Love enough and you will earn your right to get into heaven. He's not saying that. The issue here is about the proper life of faith. The Old Testament law were given to God's people that he had already saved, and they were to love God and to love others. It was about how to live as God's people, not how to save yourself. So, the lawyer has answered truly. Jesus agrees with his answer, and now the lawyer has been told to live accordingly. And then we're told, verse 29, the lawyer speaks up again. Desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, for some reason, the lawyer homes in on the second half of the commandment, the great commandment, love your neighbor. He doesn't really deal with trying to justify his love for God. I'm not sure why. Maybe he thinks he's fine in that department. Or more likely, it's because people usually don't know how to show love for God in a very obvious way. So the way you show your love for God is the way that you treat other people. And so maybe he's focusing on that, right? It's evidence. Our evidence for our love for God is our love for people. The New Testament will teach that as well. So maybe he thinks that way. But whatever it is, the lawyer wants to justify himself when it comes to to his love for his neighbor. He wants to show that in this part of the law, he was actually on track and actually doing the right thing. And he does this, he justifies himself by posing this question, right? Who is my neighbor? Now, you ask, ask yourself, and you, have to, you might wonder to yourself, why is this question a way to justify that you're actually doing this law, right? How is this a justification that you're achieving this commandment? Well, who is my neighbor is a question that seeks to limit the command to love. Right? It seeks to limit it. Right? Who is this defined group called neighbor that I have to love. And the implication for this lawyer is, I have my defying group, and I am already loving them, so I'm justifying myself by saying this is the limit of who I have to love. You see, the lawyer in him, and the lawyer in all of us, does this all the time, isn't it? We define things to limit what we have to do. So, for instance, you know, you have all kinds of legal documents and and contracts and these things called product disclosure statements. You guys ever read those? You know, when you sign a mobile phone contract or whatever, you ought to read those things because it defines for you what is covered and not covered by the different parties involved. 
And so when you have a product and you buy a product and it has a warranty, it's very clearly defined what is covered and not covered by the warranty. You know how sometimes you have this advertising that says 100% guarantee, and then with a little asterisk, and you read the fine print, and it's 100% guarantee when these things happen, and it defines very clearly the conditions that have to be met. The same goes with insurance. Most of you here look too young to be homeowners, but in 2011, if you're a homeowner being affected by the Queensland floods back then, depending on your insurance company, it would, would, would depend on the definition of what was a flood. Right? And for some companies, a flood only meant water that came down from the sky and not water that flowed, raised up from the ground. And so when the rivers were flooded and the banks were flooded and you were flooded in your home, you weren't covered because flood didn't mean flood when it came to waters that came up from the ground. And people were stung by that. That's what we do, isn't it? The definitions makes it clear the boundaries that a law applies to. It limits the application of a law. So the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Because you see, for a Jew, they had ways of limiting this love for neighbor. Right? They would say, love my neighbor, but hate my enemy. They would add this clause. So love for neighbor means, doesn't mean loving enemies because you could hate your enemies. Or they would say, they would put a national, nationality limit to their laws. We are to love fellow Jews. You kind of get a sense of that in Leviticus uh, 18, right? You are to love your fellow Jews, but for the pagan Gentiles, there's no need to love them. For those vile, half-blood, half-caste Samaritans who had intermarried Jews and Gentiles, you don't have to worry about them either, right? You just love your fellow Jew. And so for this lawyer, by, by this definition and within this, these limits, he justifies himself. And Jesus responds to this man's question with one of the most famous of all parables, doesn't he? If you read through the story, you'll see that there is a man that appears with no name, no nationality, no detail, details given whatsoever. He's traveling from Jerusalem towards Jericho. And on this journey, he's robbed, he's stripped of his clothes, and he's beaten half to death. And then we're told that a priest, which is a Jewish religious leader and teacher, walks past and passes by on the other side of the street. And then a Levite, who is a servant in God's temple, another Jewish prominent person, does exactly the same thing, bypassing seemingly as far away from this injured man as possible on the other side of the street. But then as we know, a Samaritan man, right, a man from this group of people that the Jews reviled and despised and hated, he sees this man in great need, and what, what happens? He has compassion. Right? Something stirs in his heart. And then compassion makes the Samaritan man take notice and then take action, very concrete actions. So with compassion in his heart, he went to the man, and then he bound up this man's wounds. Now, likely, he probably tore strips of his own clothing, because back in those days, it wasn't like they walked around with a first aid kit with a nicely rolled up, you know, crate bandage, right, in their supplies. And he pours oil and wine to treat this man's wounds. But then he goes above and beyond. The Samaritan puts this man on his animal, probably on his donkey, and he walks while the injured man rides. He brings him into an inn and he stays there with him and pays for his stay there. Two denarii, we're told, which two days wages. That's what a denarii is, a one-day wage, or two denarii, two days wage. And apparently, two days wage would get you 24 days in a typical inn back in those days. 
but he still does more. He says to the innkeeper, whatever else you need to do to look after this man's needs, I will pay for it when I come back. It's crazy, isn't it? Whatever it costs, he'll pay. This is a picture of lavish love. The response of compassion to a complete stranger in need, and then the action of such generosity and sacrifice for the man that flowed out of his compassion. And the fact that Jesus makes the main character in this story, told to the Jewish lawyer, a Samaritan man would not have been lost. It would have been a real in-your-face to this lawyer. A Samaritan of such lavish love, such a far cry to the limited love that drove the lawyer's justification question. Such a contrast, the lavish love of the Samaritan, the limited love of the lawyer that made him ask the question. Who can I limit my love to? Who is my neighbor? Jesus flips that question around and says to the lawyer, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? And the answer is the Samaritan. It's not about limiting love, who is my neighbor? It's about who can I be a neighbor to? It's about who can you lavish your love upon? Who is in need that I can serve? Jesus' final words to the lawyer are, go and do likewise. Love like the Samaritan. Have compassion for those in need. Give to them generously and sacrificially. Don't limit who your neighbor is. Be a neighbor without limit to those in need. Now, this is as applicable today uh, for us as it was for the lawyer back then, isn't it? What does it mean for us to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be God's people saved by grace, headed for heaven, hoping for the inheritance of eternal life? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus says it means to love our neighbor. It means to be a neighbor that loves without discrimination and limitation, to show compassion and to be generous to those in need, regardless of who they are. Now, the great challenge of this passage, as I said at the beginning, isn't the call for us to love our neighbor. We all agree in principle with that. The great challenge, the great confrontation of this passage is to challenge our limited love for people. It calls out and challenges and confronts our limited love. Because we're all like the lawyer in some way, aren't we? We're all like the lawyer in some way. Whether we realize it or not, we define the limits of our love. So even though we agree with this in principle, we all live with an outer limit to how our love will be expressed. There are people outside those limits that we keep at arm's length where we won't love and we won't show compassion to. And so maybe for you, if you're at school, there might be someone who's really annoying that you try and keep at a distance someone who's too, too school, cool for school or, or someone who's too weird or too annoying or too nerdy and, and you, you know that you, you, you won't ever notice what kind of needs that they have. You certainly won't meet them. Perhaps the same thing might be happening at work. Maybe it's your boss who's overbearing and unfair and just a difficult person. It could be a prickly colleague or someone in a different socioeconomic class. Maybe, maybe it's the cleaner you know, who comes in at the end of the workday where, where you, you would never pay attention to, let alone figure out whether they've got needs. It could even happen at church, can't it? Sometimes we go to church and we'll deliberately seat, sit a few seats further away from particular people in the church. There are people we would try to avoid talking to when there's that milling around period afterwards. 
You know, at the end of our service, we always gather in twos or threes to chat. And maybe you'll be looking around now thinking, who do I not want to chat with? Right? There are people who you know who have a different theological view to you on the Bible or a different political view, a different view on, on COVID-19 and its severity and, and on, on, some, on some other controversial topic. And you just don't really like them and you try to avoid them. There are people in life we just have very little regard for or feels about. We have no compassion for them and we have no interest in how their lives are going. And even if we do find out very clearly that they're in need, we will be very reluctant to want to get involved and to help out in any way. And we would say that this is normal human behavior, wouldn't we? We would justify ourselves. After all, isn't it true in life that there are people we click with and there are people that we don't? Isn't it normal and natural for us to have our friendship groups and our fellowship groups and our cliques? Come on, let's be honest. Isn't it quite uncomfortable and quite unpleasant to speak to and spend time with these people, with those people? When it comes to love, isn't it normal to have our limits? Now, it is normal human behavior, isn't it? But it is not normal Christian behavior. This is lawyer love, not Samaritan love. This is the kind of love that the sinners in this world, those who do not believe in God of love, who do not believe in Jesus, who have not been saved, they have this kind of love too. They too love people in their own limited way. But we are saved and sanctified to be different. We are followers of Jesus heading for eternal life. And so our love ought to be different. We ought to have a love that sees the needs of those even outside our natural human limits and be willing to, to, to have compassion and to show generous and sacrificial love to them. Now, there is that outer limit that we set. But I, as I thought about this, I, I think there's also a strange uh, limit that we set to those on the inside, the, the inner circle kind of limits to love that we have put up. So, you know, and uh, as I get older, I, I now think of from a perspective of a parent, and I think about the way I was as a kid, and I look at the kids around. And these kids can be young kids, it can be teens, it can be young adults, and even grown adults. And I see how they treat their parents. They treat them with disrespect and with disdain, dismissively, devoid of warmth, compassion, and generous love. So I see it sometimes, even in church. You know, I'll, I'll see two people, brother and sister in Christ, or two, a couple of brothers chatting uh, animatedly and warmly towards each other, and then one of their parents comes. Maybe ask them, are you going to be home for dinner tonight? Like, what are you doing tomorrow? And suddenly you see the mood change. Have you noticed that sometimes? A parent comes to speak to their kid, and then the mood changes. They, they look annoyed that the parent has come. The tone in their voice, so it changes. One word answers. Before they were chatting happily away, and then suddenly one word answers, dismissive answers. And you can see the body language. They turn their bodies away. They do the minimum required to keep that conversation going because they really just want to carry on with their friendships and they want to not, uh, uh, neglect and move away from their parents. I'm not sure if you've seen that yourself and maybe you've done it yourself as a kid. I know I have growing up. Sometimes the way I treat my parents is so far from the neighborly love that I ought to be showing. And now it's true also for the way I treat my children and how we treat our spouse or our siblings, or our housemates. It's strange, isn't it, that those closest to us so often bear the brunt 
of our lovelessness, our irritation, our annoyance, our sharp words, our inattention, our impatience. Why is it that we withhold love from those closest to us? Why is it that we somehow justify not treating them with the same amount of compassion and generosity and sacrifice as we do other people? Are we not called to be neighbours to our spouse, our children, our siblings, our housemates, also those closest to us? And so we have these limits, don't we? The outer limit and this sort of strange inner limit. Now, moving on from the conversation with the lawyer, Jesus enters a village and is welcome into the home of two sisters, Martha and Mary. So we're looking at verse 38 to 42. And we've considered the issue of love for neighbor in the previous interaction, and now we move on, we seems, to be the issue of love for God. Right? In this short story, we see how these two sisters interact with Jesus. Now, clearly, Mary and Martha know something about Jesus because they welcome him into their homes. If you've been reading along over the last week or so, you have realized that Jesus has been moving through the towns from Galilee towards Jerusalem as he journeys towards Jerusalem where he would die on the cross. And he has sent 72 disciples to be on mission to prepare people for Jesus' coming and to preach the kingdom that was arriving. So maybe Mary and Martha were people that these 72 disciples, or these two of the 72 disciples, had, had come and, and, and shared the news of, of peace and shared with them about the kingdom of God, and shared with them about Jesus the Christ. In any case, Jesus arrives, and their sisters eagerly welcome him into their house. Martha receives Jesus by basically being an Asian mum. Right? If you read the story, doesn't she just look like an Asian mum? She's like fussing, and fussing over all these things uh, in the house. She's, she's cleaning down every surface. You know, pre-COVID already, she was a clean freak probably, and she's cleaning things down. She's preparing food probably three times more than is required. That's what Asian mums do. And she's preparing the drinks. And maybe she's even trying to get the room ready. Maybe Jesus might stay over. So maybe he's setting up the room. And you know, the typical Asian mom, fussing, frantic. She's an acts of service kind of person, anxiously doing, furiously serving. It seems like a very devoted thing to do, isn't it? Asian moms do that out of devotion to their children and to their families. But look at how Luke puts it in verse 40. Martha was distracted, distracted with much serving. Now, to be distracted is to have your attention pulled away from the main action, from your primary purpose. Not focusing on the main thing, but being preoccupied with something far less important. Mary was distracted in her devotion to Jesus. Whereas Mary, on the other hand, was sitting at Jesus' feet, taking on the posture of a disciple, right? drawing near to Jesus, whom she had heard about, who was the Christ, God's King, drawing near, sitting at his feet in this position of humility, open hearts, open ears, willing to listen and to learn from the words, the teachings, the revelations of Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 42, Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary had chosen to do the main thing that was necessary. She had got the focus, the, the priority, the main thing right. You see, when it comes to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the focus, the priority, the main thing is to draw near to Him to sit at his feet in a position of humility with open ears and open hearts to listen to what he has to teach, to tell us what we need to know. 
Now, we know what listening is, don't we? We, we listen to people uh, in order to get to know people. We treasure, we listen carefully when we treasure what people have to say. And in listening, we build relationships, we build connections. Drawing near and listening to Jesus is fundamental to being a Christian for a very good reason. If you were here last week, if you flip back just to the previous passage, you would have heard Jesus said, as he prayed to the Father, that he is the one, he is the only one by whom we can know God. The Son is the only one who knows the Father. The Father is the only one who knows the Son. And he has given the Son to be the person that tells and reveals who God is. The Son is the one who comes to reveal the kingdom, what it's about, how to get into it. The Son himself is the king of that kingdom. And so we have to listen to Jesus if we want to get to know God. We have to listen to Jesus if we want to know how to go into the kingdom of God. We have to get to know Jesus because he is our king. Now back in Deuteronomy 6, in that famous command, the Shema, love God, what follows straight after the love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul is the instruction to teach the word of God. For parents to teach their children, for everyone to be reminded of God's word, to keep listening and obeying God's word. Because to love God is to listen to God in order to live for God. So it is for disciples of Jesus Christ. To love God is to be devoted to drawing near and listening to Jesus, God's Son, the only one who reveals God. Our love for God should be expressed and evidenced first and foremost by our drawing near to God in His Word all the time. Now, I don't mean some kind of dry intellectual reading, right? Like you read some kind of school textbook. I was just speaking to someone recently and, and the, 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 talking about fellowship groups and talking about quiet times. And for some reason, the conversation ended up being about, I would rather uh, have a fellowship group where there is more sharing and prayer and fellowship than boring Bible study. And people talk about how we, we have a quiet time which is more devotional and connected, and then we have Bible study, which is dry and intellectual. Now, I'm not sure why there is this divide, because the reading of God's Word, yes, it can be dry and intellectual, but it ought not to be. The reading of God's Word ought to be devotional and, 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 and uplifting and, 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 and draw us closer to our Lord Jesus relationally and spiritually. Now, if we open our Bibles, we ought to open it as, as someone sending us a, a love letter, right? a handwritten love letter from a dear friend. Now, I know many of you don't get those anymore. Uh, no one writes letters anymore on paper. I, I still do get a few letters, funnily enough. Uh, they're from cults. I'm not sure why, but they're really great at writing me handwritten letters and cards. There's one, I think it's in Thai or Vietnamese. I cannot read a word of it, but they know my name and they know my address, and I get a card from them, these two ladies, every month or every second month. It's really strange. It's quite heartwarming to receive it. I don't know what they're saying, but it's so nice that someone took the effort to write me a letter, right? Now, for those of us who are old enough to remember receiving love letters in the mail, in a way, reading the Bible ought to be like that, that kind of anticipation as we open it. A love letter personally written to us. To read these words as precious words written personally to us. For us to be eager to open and to hear and to understand what is being said and to live it out. Now as Christians, yes, it's a good thing to be attending Christian things and be active in service. 
to be on rosters and in roles and, and even sacrificing time and money in the service of our Lord Jesus and the church. But these are not the foundation, the starting point, or the main and primary way that we show our devotion to Jesus. And the problem for us is that we often use these as the measure for how well we're going in our faith, whether we're regular at church, whether we're regular in opening our Bible and saying our prayers, whether we are regular in our service and involvement in church. We let these things distract us right, from the main way of showing devotion to Jesus, which is coming to him and listening to his word. Now, for me, I, I think I, I struggle with this all the time. Right? I, I, I'm a professional Christian, so to speak. I get to read the Bible every day. But so often, when I come to the Bible, it's for me to prepare a Bible study or to prepare a sermon. And I love it. Right? I love being open to the Bible, open the, the Word of God, and looking at a passage and breaking it down to its paragraphs and thinking about the flow of ideas and trying to come up with the main point and the main purpose and how to apply it. But does, do I actually draw near to Jesus and listen as if Jesus was speaking to me? Sometimes I do, but I know many times I don't. It isn't until two, three days into the process where I start to realize that this is God's word speaking to me. So even in ministry, I can be doing and not really drawing near and listening. Even though the Bible is being opened, I'm not exactly drawing near and listening. What about for you guys? Many of us here are faithful Christians seeking to serve God in many ways. We seek to be you know, a good parent that serves our family in our cooking and cleaning and our providing, going to work. We can be busy um, in church activities. You know, People like DT and Esther today being our church host team, busy trying to get Eventbrite to work and check everyone in and making sure everything is COVID safe. People at homes, you know, maybe you're a home host. And maybe you're like my family this morning, you're getting ready for the people to come. You're busy cleaning everything down, putting away all the clothes and all the dishes and trying to print out the bulletins for everybody. And I know for the families with kids, in the middle of the sermon, what happens? You have to go away and then set up the uh, Padlet for the children for Kids Church on YouTube and then set up their, their worksheets. And I know every other parent is missing about 10, 15 minutes of the sermon doing that in the middle of church. And we're doing all these good things. We're doing it for Jesus. But then they distract us, don't they? They distract us from the true devotion, which is to draw near to Christ and to listen. Now, I don't mean that we only do that in place of all these works of service, but I'm saying that we better not be distracted by all these works of service and not draw near to Jesus and listen. Now, I think it's the reason why we are so easily distracted in our devotion by moving towards service and activity is because it's easier, isn't it? It's more tangible, it's more measurable, more doable, more achievable to just do stuff. It takes far more energy, I think, to draw near to Jesus that we can't see and to read God's word, to listen to what he has to say. Because unlike a love letter that I received from my wife, perhaps, in the mail, which is easily decipherable, the Bible does require some hard work to read and understand and apply. But if we understand, that's what it means to be devoted to Jesus, to, to draw near and to listen and to live out this life, then we will do so. Okay, let's wrap things up. Love neighbor, love God. It is not unfamiliar to us. The challenge 
the confrontation, I guess the, the call for us today really is about repenting of our limited love for neighbor and our distracted devotion to God. Disciples of Jesus Christ are called to a lavish love without limits and a devoted, undistracted love for Jesus as we draw near to him and listen to his word. Now, if love like this was easy, we'd all already be doing it, right? We'd already be doing it. But the fact is, it's not easy. And in fact, if you were to think about loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving neighbor in this lavish, unlimited way, as we see in this passage, we would know that it is downright impossible to do it like this. Which is why, as we hear this call for disciples to love this way, we have to keep going back to the gospel that grounds our faith and our salvation, the gospel of grace. It is in the gospel of Jesus that we see Jesus to be the perfect lover, the true neighbor who shows compassion without limit, who shows generosity and sacrifice without limit, that he will give his life in the service of sinners and enemies. It is the gospel that shows Jesus to be the only one who is truly devoted to the Father, always listening, always doing the Father's will, always going to God in prayer. And because Jesus is the perfect lover of God and the lover of neighbor that qualifies him to be our sacrifice, to be our substitute, to be our savior. And that's where we ground our efforts to live for Jesus. It's in grace that we have been forgiven and saved in Jesus, in his perfect love. And on top of that, Jesus is also our model, isn't he? We can look to Jesus as the one who is the perfectly loving neighbor and the one who perfectly loves God. We see his love expressed for enemies and haters, for rich and for poor, for young and old, for Jew and Gentile, for male and female. He loved everybody. What a model for us. Through his devotion to his father, in wanting to listen to the father, even though they're father and son in eternity, Jesus still listened and learned and obeyed the father. He still went to the father in prayer every day. We can learn from Jesus' devotion to God. Love for others, love for God, nothing new today. But we know that our love is flawed in its limits and our devotion is distracted. So let us not stay that way. Let us ask for Jesus now to help us to live out this life of love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the great challenge it is not just to agree with the principle and practice of loving you and loving neighbor, but to be challenged with our limited love and to be challenged by our distracted devotion to Jesus. It is a big call for us to love in such a lavish way that the Samaritan showed, that Jesus showed even in even greater measure. But we pray that you will stir in our hearts and by your spirit empower us to love in this kind of way. Help us to see just how much love you have shown us even though we were undeserving, that we might be able to show love to others that we might think are undeserving. And we pray that you help us to strive to draw near to Jesus and to draw near to his words every day. Help us not to be distracted just by doing things for Jesus or doing things in Christian service, but help us to see that our primary way of showing love is to draw near to you and to listen to you. All this we pray in Jesus' name.
Good afternoon, everyone. There's a couple of questions that have come in for the Q&A. So uh, let me work through these, uh, and then we can carry on with our weekend. First question is a good question, a hard question. Regarding the mission of disciples, how do we make sense of the verses about those who go through the gate to heaven a few, which is from Matthew 7, 14 and 19, 24, that seems to contradict the idea that the harvest is plentiful, which we saw in the passage in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 2. So Luke chapter 10, verse 2, uh, the harvest is plentiful. Uh, Matthew seven fourteen, uh, the gate to heaven is narrow and those who enter are few. Very good question, very difficult question. Um, and I read about it during the week preparation last week, but I can't remember what the answer is. So I'm going to think of an answer on the spot. And I think the answer that I can think of on the spot is the context. In Matthew uh, 7, it's to do with uh, the warnings uh, about those who would live God's kingdom way. Uh, and it's in that passage towards the end of chapter 7 where it's talking about two ways to live uh, and making that choice uh, to live Jesus' way and not our own way. And the, the passage about the narrow gate is a warning uh, to, to take it seriously and to see that uh, it is not an easy uh, way of life to live um, and emphasizing kind of that restriction Whereas in the context of Matthew, in setting out to mission, is telling them what to expect as they go out with the message of the gospel, that there will be people who God prepares to receive his message and are working the lives of, and the harvest is plentiful in the sense that there are many who will respond. So in one context, I guess, few is an emphasis on, on, on there, are, there, there is a response to be made and there is a warning that the response is very serious uh, and very difficult. Whereas on the other context, it's to do with uh, the openness of the mission and the uh, people that God wants to save. So I think probably that one, the context is probably the most important. In terms of the actual numbers, only God knows. Um, but if you look over history, you will see that the gospel has gone out to millions uh, and that uh, those who have received the gospel seem to be also in the millions, uh, if not hundreds of millions. Um, and... Um, I would say that the Matthew 7 passage would be trying to tell people to take their faith seriously and to keep walking with Jesus. And the Luke passage is to encourage Christians to keep bringing the message of the gospel out because God is in the business of saving. So that's um, my initial answer. I'll have to do more reading and perhaps you can do your research as well and tell me whether there are other things that can help explain this apparent contradiction. Uh, next question. The Samaritan first felt compassion before loving in action. Should we act in love without being moved in our heart too? Should we act in love without being moved in our heart too? I suppose it depends on what you mean moved in your heart too. Uh, I think oftentimes we're not quite sure how to define the experience of love and compassion. Uh, it sounds like something we ought to feel and emote. And I suppose there should be some kind of emotional component. Um, but the fact that you uh, have a desire to want to act, I think, is to be moved to act. Uh, and uh, love doesn't mean like. It means that you see a need and you have a desire to, to care for that person and to meet that need. So depending on how we define moved in our heart and what we define love to mean, the question, should we act in love without being moved in our heart to, I would say that the fact that you are wanting to act in love is being moved in your heart to. Uh, and so yes, the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, what if someone loves his or her neighbor a lot but is not devoted to God? 
Does that mean that the person doesn't have eternal life? All right, so first thing to be said is that a person has eternal life uh, by virtue of trusting in the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is Jesus who saves, and it's, our put, it's, it's us putting our lives in Jesus' hands in his death and resurrection that grants us eternal life and secures our place in heaven. Right? So that's the first and most important thing to say is that the gospel is what saves us. The next question then after that is, how do I know that I have genuine faith? How do I know that I truly do trust in Jesus as my King and Savior? And the Bible tells us that the evidence for that genuine faith is in the way that we respond, right? our, our obedience and our repentance. And a big part of our obedience and repentance is loving God and loving others, right? Um, there, are, there are many ways of expressing what a, a life of faith looks like, but those two are what this passage is about. So the question is, what if someone loves his or her neighbor a lot but is not devoted to God? Does that mean that person is not safe? Well, the answer is not so much uh, whether they're safe or not safe, but if a person doesn't devote themselves to God and doesn't love God, then in what sense do they trust Jesus, their, their Savior? Does that make sense? So I'm not, no one is in a position to be able to determine whether someone's saved or not, but we are in a position, if someone says to us they love people but they don't love God and they call themselves a Christian, I'll be thinking, what does being a Christian mean to you? What do you, what do you think it means to, to trust in Jesus? And why is it that you don't want to love God when you say you trust Jesus? It doesn't seem to make much sense for someone to claim to be a follower of Jesus, to rely on Jesus and to trust Him as Christ and Savior, but to not want to be devoted to Him, right, to God. So it just seems like a strange thing for someone to want to live by if, they're a, uh, if they call themselves a believer. So I'm not sure if I, answered that, if I understood that question properly, um, but um, hopefully that addresses the issue. If I haven't answered that question properly, please send me a message uh, and I will try to address that uh, question better. All right, that is it for the questions for this week's Q&A. Uh, thank you for your questions, and thank you for listening to the answers. Uh, do continue to search scriptures yourself uh, to be able to see what the answers are from the Bible. Uh, the Q next Q&A session will be after the following sermon uh, in two weeks' time. Well, thank you all, and have a great week, and I hope to see you all soon. God bless.